You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. All right, how's everybody doing? Hey, welcome to Calvary. We are glad that you're here. So quick question before we get started. Anybody here a competitive person? Yeah, look around. Wow, a lot of competitive people. What's funny is, is that there's some people looking around, the ultra competitive, who are like, I'm way more competitive than them. And, uh, but I, I, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am a very competitive person. I can turn essentially anything into a competition. And even if the other person doesn't want to compete, I'm fine with that. It just means I'm going to win easier. So, uh, and I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I ordered a grill off of Amazon and we, uh, they delivered it and you know, it's not pre-built, so I got to build the whole thing. So I'm about 30 minutes into it and my wife says, Bob, why don't you take a break from building the grill so we can have dinner? And I say, no, listen, I'll have this done in 15 minutes. And she says, there is no way that you can have this grill done, built in 15 minutes. And I said, not only will I have it done in 15 minutes, in 20 minutes, I'll be grilling burgers on the aforementioned grill. And so, so she says, okay. So she goes to the oven and sets a 20 minute timer. She goes, I'm gonna give you five extra minutes and you still won't have it done in 20 minutes. And so I just said, challenge accepted. And so I start working as fast as humanly possible to get this grill done because no matter what, I am gonna win. And so anyway, uh, now, be, uh, one of the things that you should know about me is that I am really good at building things. Uh, in fact, when I build stuff, I don't even need all the parts they send me. So I have a lot of parts left over. That's how good I am at building things. So now I should have thought this through a little bit more because there was a lot of, comp there was like, it had one of those side burners. So I had to connect wires and stuff. So I didn't think about that, but that didn't matter. When that buzzer went off 20 minutes later, I'm screwing in the last two screws and proclaiming my victory. And so, and so anyway, I'm just like, I'm done. I won. And my wife comes over and she's like, wow, Bob, I'm really impressed. You, you did it. She's like, but do you see this part right here? I said, yeah. She says, well, um, you built the grill backwards. So if you ever like this, you will burn to death. And so, but hey, I'm impressed that you did it in 20 minutes. So anyway, it was so frustrating. So I take the entire thing apart and then reassemble it correctly. Almost an hour later, we're sitting down to eat. And then she just, in this charming way that she does, she just says, hey, um, next time I say I'll be ready in five minutes and I take a little longer, you're never allowed to say anything ever again. And, uh, and that has continued to this day. And here's the point is that there is a way that seems right, but in the end is totally wrong. And that, this idea that there's a, a couple, two different ways that things might seem right, but in the end are totally wrong, is at the heart of what Jesus is going to tell us as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is probably the most important message in this entire, uh, and we've been, this, I think this is the 14th message in this series so far. Ten of them have been in, on the Sermon on the Mount, so it's, it's kind of been a, a bit of a detour. But this is probably the most important message in this entire series so far because Jesus is going to put it all together. 
He's been teaching us a great deal of things over the last 10 weeks, and this is where he puts it all together because Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter, and it's only when you understand the last section where Jesus gives us four illustrations telling us the same thing that you understand what Jesus has been saying all along through these entire three chapters of of this sermon because at the very core, Jesus is going to be comparing two types of people that outwardly look the same, but inwardly are very different. Now, and here's the reality, and this is so important, is that if the words of Jesus that we're going to look at don't rattle your cage, you didn't get it, all right? So if, you, if you're listening to this and, and you're like, sheesh, you know, and it's like, it, it, it's, it's really hurting, and you're, you're like, you got it. But if you're, if, if you're, listening and you're like, wow, this is fabulous. <laughs> you don't get it uh, because this, we, 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 we didn't hear it. So I want you to understand this as, as we, go, we go into it. Jesus is talking about, and he's going to use, and um, once again, not for the sake of being repetitive, but just uh, it's important for us to understand. He's going to give us four illustrations, all saying the same thing to show us that there's two different ways to live. And he's not talking about, and once again, sometimes you hear it taught like this and it's wrong. And that is that there's two different ways that you can live. There's the way that you can walk with God and the way that uh, people who don't believe go. That's not it. Because everyone that was listening to Jesus that day when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, they were all Jewish. They all believed in God. They were all trying to keep the law. But there is a motive that's at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. And that's what's so important for us to understand. And so Jesus isn't talking like there's this one message for those who are inside the church and one for those who are outside. No, he's talking to us in the whole message that those of us who are inside the people of God, there's two ways that you can live. Now, you might be here and you say, well, I don't really, I'm I'm not a Christian. I I go to church sometimes because I like how it feels. I come here because I heard the pastor is funny and super handsome. And... (laughs) a little, it's a little too much. So, but, but though the activity looks exactly the same on the outside, the inner motive reveals the intention and ultimately the destination of our lives. So here's where we're going to begin in Matthew chapter seven. We're going to start in verse 13. He says this, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. And if you pause there and give me your attention, the first thing that we're going to look at is true spirituality. And this is what Jesus is talking about. True spirituality is accepting a new identity. And this is what uh, is, is the point that Jesus is making, that there's two ways. One looks easy and the other looks difficult. But even though they, they, they're, they're different and the, at the gate, they all kind of seem to lead to the same place. And the idea is that there's a gate, a narrow gate that's very tight. And it almost seems like it's going to choke you out, but it leads to something wonderful. That is the life that you've been looking for. And the other gate seems spacious and open, but it doesn't lead to where you want to go. And then once again, the metaphor that Jesus is going to give here, and then he's going to talk about two different types of trees. He's going to talk about people doing spiritual activities. And then he's going to talk about two people that are building a house. It's all the same thing. The metaphor is that on the outward, things look the same, but they aren't the same thing when you get beneath the surface. Several years ago, we were out at lunch with... um, 
at uh, Pembroke Gar- the shops at Pembroke Gardens, which is uh, you know down the street. We were there for lunch, and so we were gonna put we were gonna walk around after lunch. So we've taken some of the bags that we had. And we were gonna put them in the car, and so my son was probably about four at the time, and so we had a minivan uh, at at the time, and so. He wanted to hold the keys. He's like, Dad, let me hold the keys like you. So he takes the keys, puts them in his pocket. So we get to the car, and I say, Zan, open the trunk. And, uh, and so then he starts pressing the button, and the trunk doesn't open. I'm like, buddy, you got to hold the button down. I don't know why that's the case, but you got to hold the button down, and then when you hold the button down, that's what makes it open. So anyway, he does that, and it doesn't do it. And I'm like, all right, let me see this. I'm going to teach you how to do it. And I hold the button down, and nothing happens. And then I go to the back of the car. I'm like, what is wrong? And I realize that someone had taken my license plate and replaced it with an Arizona license plate. (laughs) And I'm like, what is going on? And they had taken off my Calvary sticker from the back of my car. And, And then I looked four cars over, and I see the back of this minivan going up and down. And then I just had the moment that, oh. And so then I, I tell Zan, I'm like, you do not breathe a word of this to your mother, all right? Never speak of this again. And, and once again, the point is, is that just because it looks the same doesn't mean it's the same thing. And so the question then becomes, what does this illustration mean? If there is a narrow gate and there is a broad gate, what, is, what does it mean? It means, it doesn't mean that there's this one road of all these people trying to do the right thing, and then there's another road of everyone doing everything that's possible that's immoral. Remember, and once again, for the sake of being repetitive, um, Jesus is giving four illustrations about everything that looks the same on the outside, but upon further inspection, they're very different. This has been the whole point of the sermon, that from the very beginning of the counterintuitive way to find happiness, about how to be more righteous than the Pharisees, on, in the broad way, I'm doing all of these right things and then thinking that somehow God owes me. In the narrow way, I'm doing all the right things or I'm seeking to do the right things because Jesus has done so much for me and my only response is to give my whole life to him. You see, the broad way is very insidious. It allows me to kind of keep doing what I've been doing. I just kind of sprinkle God into the mix. And the narrow way forces me to drop everything that I have, everything that I deem to be my identity for the sake of knowing Jesus and following him. And when we go through the narrow gate, once again, we have to squeeze through the narrow gate. We've got to let go of everything to gain the person of Jesus. And a lot of times, listen, we're just trying to get Jesus to make, be kind of like a part of our program, make him one more thing. And that's just, that's just not how it works. And it's just like, Jesus, I just want you to just kind of bless what I've already got going on. That's not how it works. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. See, this is an issue of identity. This is where we try to invite Jesus into our program and just make our lives a little bit better than, they, than it was without him. And this is why the gate is narrow. The gate is narrow because I can't carry anything else except him. And it's an invitation to leave everything behind and follow him. And that includes all the things that we have used in our lives to identify ourselves. All the things that we have used to somehow measure ourselves to make us feel where we are on the level of success. And what Jesus is saying is you can't just add God as a side item in your life and get the life that you want. It doesn't lead there. It leads to ruin. 
And, and this, this idea is that as Christians, the way it works is that we lay everything down. Uh, and as the writer of Hebrews would say, we let go of all the weight that's holding us back so that we can lay hold of something better. And this, I always, you can always see this happening. And somebody that's kind of doing their own thing is when they talk, they use Christianity as an adjective. When they'll say, well, you know, I'm a Christian Republican. I'm a Christian Democrat. And I think you're a Christian who doesn't get it. Uh, because Christianity is not an adjective. Christianity is inviting Jesus into your life and letting everything else go because the narrow road is the road that leads to the life that I've been looking for. And by the way, nothing wrong with having political opinions, but those things should always come way down on the list than our faith because our faith should be the thing that informs everything else in our lives. And listen, that is no, has never been more important than it, than it is now. And so let me talk about uh, this week and the Supreme Court ruling for a moment. So a couple of things, all right? And I know this is a touchy subject, so just everybody just relax for a minute. And if you get upset with me, at least wait till the end of the argument, and then you can storm out, and we'll, we'll give you appropriate, you know, acknowledgement. So, but a couple of things, all right? First, uh, abortion is still legal. And uh, it's just been brought to the state level, so citizens can decide if that's something that they want or not. The second thing that's important for us to understand is that our faith isn't the only reason to oppose abortion. Why? Because scientifically, an unborn child is alive. And anything else that you hear is either spin or politics. And that's just the reality. And listen, and, 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 that's, and here's how we know that. Because we can hear reports of, do you know that they found the possibility of a water molecule on Mars? And the next day in the newspaper, the headline will be, life found on Mars. And then we do an ultrasound of a baby, and the kid is giving us a wink and a thumbs up. And we're like, I'm not sure if it's alive. And I mean, come on. I mean, we got, it's, that's just not congruent with reality. And here's the other thing is that when people say, and this is, a, this is an argument that people will make, and that is, uh, you know, if you don't want an abortion, don't have one, but you shouldn't force me to follow your faith. I mean, how do you, how do you answer that? So the first thing is, that's a weak argument. And the reason it's a weak argument is because it's built out of absurdity. So, because that can be said of anything. So, well, if you don't want, if you don't want loud music in the middle of the night, don't play it. Yeah, but if my neighbor's playing it, I still got to deal with it. Well, if you don't want a gun, don't buy one. If you don't want to steal a car, don't steal one. It just doesn't, it, once again, this is an argument based on absurdity. Laws are created to differentiate between right and wrong based on morality and logic. This is why when people say, you know, you can't legislate morality, people say that all the time. And, and I love telling people this. Do you know that the only thing you legislate is morality? that actually the opposite is true. In fact, every law that's ever been created in the history of the world is legislating morality. The second problem is this, is that it assumes that faith is the only reason to be against abortion, which once again, I talked about a moment ago, and that's just inconsistent with reality. But here's the thing that we have to understand, and I think this is important. A person's faith should be, but in, in, in many times, is their worldview. It's the way they see reality. And by the way, everyone has a worldview. Whether you are a person of faith or not, everyone has a way that they view the world. Now, it doesn't mean that their worldview is totally consistent. It doesn't mean their worldview has to totally make sense. But everyone has a way of viewing the world. 
uh, whether they are considered a religious person or not. And, but those views that are maybe irreligious can be just as strong as religious belief. And those views impact other people. And this is why when people make this argument that, well, you can have these views, but it can't impact another person. There is no way to have any view about anything that doesn't impact another person unless you're going to live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but if you're going to live in society, everything that you believe and everything that everybody else believes touches every other person. And if you say, well, I don't agree with that, then you should ask those who disagree, should I have to use your preferred pronouns in addressing you? Well, yeah. Well, and if I do, then you're imposing your worldview on me. And once again, this is the issue. And, and, so, and people will fight for this for the same, with the same passion as religious zeal. And if you don't believe me, do a Google search for people who have been imprisoned uh, for using the wrong pronouns when addressing someone. This is happening. It's happening a lot in Canada. And... Um, and, and once again, and by the way, this is something to think about. Why do studies show that men are way more likely to be pro-choice than women? That's something that is never talked about, but I think is absolutely fascinating. Why are men way more likely to be pro-abortion than women? And could it be, and I believe this is the case, that many men want the pleasure of sex without the responsibility of sex, even if it leaves women emotionally scarred for the rest of their lives, which abortion does. Now, third thing, and this is really what I wanted to get to, and that is that we should be rejoicing that it's a little bit more difficult to kill children and Christ, because Christians should always be on the side of life. You know why? Because God is on the side of life. When Pharaoh, in, in Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the Hebrew babies, it said this, that the midwives wouldn't do it for this reason. They feared God. Because God was on the side of life. When Herod killed all the children in Bethlehem because he wanted to snuff out the Messiah. Listen, Satan is the one who is into killing children. This is why both David in the Psalms and Jeremiah in his book state that God formed us in the womb. And in the Old Testament, when people walked away from God, one of the gods that they worshipped was a god named Molech. And this god Molech, you know how he was worshipped? Child sacrifice. People were like, man, these kids, they're, they're just, they're problematic. They're, they're a drain on us financially. They would go to Molech and his statue, you can look this up. He just had his arms outstretched and they would open up his stomach and put coal and wood and light a fire and his arms would get red hot. They would go to an area that was called the Valley of Trophet, which in Hebrew means the Valley of Drumming. And they would go, they would put their children on the, the burning hot arms of Molech and they would start drumming to drown out the screams of the children. And if that's not enough, when, when we got word six weeks ago that this might be the direction that the court was going in, the Church of Satan filed a lawsuit saying that abortion was a vital part of their expression of faith. So let me just make this clear, because maybe some of you are like me and you went to public school. So let me just make it so that even those of us who went to public school can understand. Um, all of the Satanists are on team abortion. And if you're on the team where all the Satanists are on, you might want to change teams because, listen, and, and if you don't, it's a free country, okay? But don't talk to me about how transformative your faith is and how my faith means everything. Don't, because it's not. Because what it really means is, it, it's just, I'm, I'm just an adjective Christian and really I'm mo way more beholden to a political party than I am to the Lord, all right? That's enough on that. And then we'll move on. 
So I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I know for a few of you, um, this is the, your last Sunday here at Calvary. And, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. We'll see you around somewhere. Yeah, uh, okay. Um, this is right about where I'd get into trouble. As if I haven't gotten into trouble already. All right, let's go. Verse 15. Jesus says this Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Second thing I want to tell you, and that is that true spirituality is recognizing a proper motive. Jesus is contrasting something here. I want you to notice he doesn't say, hey, some trees bear fruit and other trees don't. Because it's easy to see a tree that bears fruit and a tree that doesn't. He, that, anybody can see that. He's saying that some trees bear good fruit and others bear fruit that isn't good. And you can't know if it's good fruit or bad fruit until you get beneath the surface and examine the tree. And that's when he says, look at sheep. Some are sheep and some are actually ravenous Wolves, And that's a very strange word to use. Uh, it, it's a word that in the Greek language, there's this Greek word harpax. And this word, every other time that it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as extortion uh, or blackmail. And so now Jesus is saying that they are blackmailing wolves or extortionist wolves. I mean, how does that even make sense? Well, it only makes sense in the context of the entire sermon that Jesus has been giving. Jesus says in chapter 6, he says, everybody gives and everybody prays and everybody fasts, but some people are doing it for specific reasons. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he would say it this way, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They're praying so they can feel righteous and good by the people who are watching them. And by the way, it's so easy to get there. When you build your identity on what other people think of you, it's only a matter of time before everything you do is built on and built around their approval. And, and, and I'm telling you, so... Um, we, we had this, this is a few years ago. So my daughter Mia was probably about nine, Xander was six, and Livy was around three. But, um, and I was at church, but they were home, and uh, the, a bird ran into a window in our house. And from what I can tell, at least as the kids told me, the bird knocked itself out when it ran into the window. I mean, this is not the smartest bird in the flock. Now, and, and, I, and I'd like to think, I could be wrong, but I'd like to think that there's some type of bird training where they share some of the common pitfalls of being a bird in the city. And one of them should be, if you're flying and you see a bird that looks exactly like you coming at you, that's not an enemy bird, that's you. Anyway, but I don't know that they have that. So my kids come outside and they see the bird and think that it's dead. Then one of my kids prays for the bird and gets the bird some water and the bird wakes up and drinks a little, which I personally think that is the problem the whole time. That bird was drinking, and that's why it crashed into my house. But once again, that's speculation on my part. So anyway, the kids nurse the bird back to health, and shortly after, the bird flies away. That, I pick up dinner that night, 
and, um, and this is getting a little, at the time, it was a little closer to Christmas, and the kids were talking about earning money if they don't get what they want for Christmas or whatever. So as we're eating, Mia says to me, she's like, Dad, I feel weird. I said, why? She goes, ah, you know, I told you that we helped that bird earlier, and now we're eating chicken wings for dinner. <laughs> and I'm like, Mia, it's the circle of life. And it moves us all. And, uh, and then I tried to lift up my daughter Livy like Simba, but then my back hurt, and that's another part of the circle of life. And, um, and so, but now, <laughs> after dinner, Carrie and I are having this conversation, and we didn't even realize what was going on. We were just, we were having this conversation, and my daughter Mia picks up everything at the table, cleans the entire kitchen by herself, and Carrie's like, oh, Mia, are you trying to earn some extra money? And she's like, no. She's like, I just had this realization that, that you and dad cook dinner every single night, and I just wanted there to be one night when you didn't have to worry about it, uh, cleaning, every, cleaning things up. And I was like, wow. And I, 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 I said to Carrie, I'm like, wow, we are such good parents. Isn't that a weird thing to do with parents? Your kids do something good, and you're like, wow, we're fantastic. And then your kids do, your, your kids do something bad, and you're like, these rotten kids. I don't even know how they, where they get that from. Anyway, but it's just a weird thing that we do. We just keep the blame away from us. Uh, but... This is the thing that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about cleaning the kitchen to get blessed versus cleaning the kitchen because you're already blessed. If we love God, and listen, this is what he's been hammering home this whole time. If we love God because we are trying to get something out of it, we are no different than the hypocrites who pray in the streets. This is why Jesus says that they are ravenous or blackmailing wolves. They see the good that they do as a means to leverage God to get what it is that they want. And so if we decide that we're going to give or fast or pray out of anything other than just a response to the love of God, listen, we're, we're, a, we're a tree that's not bearing good fruit. But if we decide that we're going to give or pray or fast or whatever it is that we're going to do as a, just simply as a response to the love of God, we are bearing good fruit because the motive is right. Now, then Jesus is going to give the third illustration, and this is probably the heaviest one of all because it, it really shows people doing things that we would say, yeah, man, that, of course that person knows God. Uh, he says it this way. He says, but not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, this group had good theology. They believed the right things, but they were missing the point entirely. They saw their faith as a means to extract something from God. And that's why, they, and so they spend their whole lives thinking that God owes them something. And listen, you know this. If you're married, uh, marriages who keep score rarely do well. And in fact, um, if, if you're, when you're in, in your marriage and you're thinking, what can I get out of this? You're almost guaranteed to struggle. Marriages thrive when two people decide, I'm not in this for me. I'm in this because I want to honor God and I'm in this because I want to bless and honor and serve this other person. That mutual attitude is the making of a healthy and happy marriage. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying. If you're walking with God because somehow you think that God is going to owe you, you will be miserable. But if you are walking with God because you believe that you've already been blessed, you are going to have a joy that nobody can take from you. And then Jesus says probably the most famous words of this passage, 
And um, just to really hammer it home, he says this. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Last thing I want to tell you, and that is that true spirituality is taking appropriate action. This is the heart of the matter in Jesus' sermon that you can hear everything that Jesus is saying and somehow think that it doesn't apply to you. And that you can build your house. And here's the thing that people miss, is that if we were looking at these two houses, they were identical. We wouldn't be able to tell anything, wouldn't be able to tell them apart unless we got beneath the surface and saw the foundation. And this is the heart of the sermon. And the only way we'd be able to see is what happens when the storms of life come. When rain, wind, and floods come and beat on that house, one will crumble and the other will stand. Why? Because of the foundation. And what does that mean? And I'd say, I get it, but what, what does that mean? And if we don't get this, we will never understand the Sermon on the Mount. The foundation is, I don't obey God to be loved by God. The foundation is, I am already loved by God. That's why I obey. And these things are as different as lightning and a lightning bug. When I build my house on the good things that I do for God, on the record that I produce, because I'm following the letter of the law and I'm doing all these things that I'm supposed to do, somehow I feel like God owes me. If I live like that, there will be a storm that comes that I don't think that I deserve and it will blow away everything and leave me with nothing because my faith was ultimately built on me. And this is the saddest person in the world. They were doing good things, but ultimately they, they, didn't, they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping what they did for God. But when you understand that you are more loved by God than you could possibly imagine, that he provided forgiveness so long before you and I were trying to do good things, when you realize that, then our only response is to love and serve this God who has done so much for us. And when the storms come, and they will come, by the way, you will have a faith that is unshakable because it is not built on what God owes you. It's built on God's love for you. And so when circumstances come, you and I can still have joy. That's how Jesus opens the sermon. That no matter what, the things that people would think would bring misery into our lives are the things that actually, in a counterintuitive way, could bring joy. Because I'm building my life on Jesus' love for me, not me thinking that he owes me something. When he talked about being salt and light, salt and light is possible that even when people persecute me, persecute us, we don't cry foul because we're a believer because if we do, that house will not stand. Every atheist I know is someone who had something bad happen and say, well, I can't believe in a God who allows bad things happen to me. Do you know that the early church never had an issue with that? You know why? Because they saw Jesus crucified and he was the best man they had ever known. You see, when we look at the laws in the Old Testament and how love demands more, we, we, we get it because keeping score is about extracting something and love doesn't keep score. When I pray, when I give, when I fast in chapter six, and I don't do these things so that God will owe me. I do these things as a response to God's love for me. When he goes on in chapter six and he talks about, don't worry about the things you're gonna wear, the things you're gonna eat or how you're gonna live. I, I won't shake my fist at God because thinking of what we deserve 
because we know that that house will not stand when trouble comes. You see, we don't judge in chapter 7 because of how gracious God has been towards us. We treat others the way they want to be treated because we believe that God is good and he has been good. This whole sermon has been this one point hammered 10 different ways. And that's why at the very end of the sermon, here's what it says. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. That, that, that word astonished means that they, they were literally knocked out. They were thunderstruck. The sermon was making everyone who heard it rethink their walk with God. It was making them rethink what it really means to be human, what it means to, to be a follower of God, that it's not just about what we do. And that's the difference between what Jesus was saying and what the scribes were saying. The scribes were telling them how to build their life on technicalities so that they could be religious professionals and not have to do anything for anybody else. Jesus was telling them that how to embrace a true spirituality that transforms our lives. And it's the motivation behind what we do and what our motivation is that will be the difference between a faith that, a faith that fails us and a faith that endures. Now, uh, if you've been around Calvary for a while, you've probably heard this. If not, uh, I'll share it with you. But um, my daughter Mia uh, almost died at the age of three. And uh, she contracted an illness that doctors uh, believed, they, they had diagnosed her with something that's called Stephen Johnson syndrome, which is an illness that only has about a 5% survival rate. And I, we remember that um, she, was, um, she was not feeling well, and she had all these symptoms, and um, her feet started swelling, her hands started swelling, her face started swelling. So we took her to uh, her pediatrician, and they said, you need to go to the ER immediately. We took her to the ER, and then they said, you need to go to Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, and, but we're not going to um, let you drive there. They put us in an ambulance and they took us immediately. And um, by the end of that day, Mia couldn't even walk anymore. Uh, she couldn't even hold a crayon in her hand. Her, her, all of her extremities were, were so swollen. Her face was swollen. She couldn't even recognize herself in the mirror. And when they started doing all these tests at the end um, of doing all the tests, they said, listen, this is what we believe it is. And there's, there's nothing that we can do uh, except make her comfortable. And that night, um, Carrie falls asleep in bed uh, next to Mia. And so I'm sitting in the chair in her room. And I had this, um, this moment of indignation where I just started telling God everything that I had done for him and how he owed me. And I, and I remember praying, and I, and I just said, God, how could you let this happen? How could you let this happen to, to, to me, of all people? After everything I've done, after everything I've sacrificed and all these things, and I don't understand how you could do this to me. And listen, I was crying out, and I don't even know that I could call it a prayer. It was more of a yelling session. But I was saying all of these things, and in my desperation, God spoke to me and said, Bob, I know. I know what it's like to watch your child suffer. I watched mine suffer as well. And in that moment, I, had the, I knew the challenge that was before me. I had to decide if I was going to live my life one of these two ways that Jesus has been talking about. Was I going to do all of these things? I was going to do all these spiritual things thinking that because I did them, somehow God was going to owe me. 
Or was I going to follow him because he saved me and I owe him everything anyway? And that night, I prayed the hardest prayer I have ever prayed in my entire life. And I said, God, if you want to take me, I am going to be heartbroken because I love her so much. And I will count these last three years as the best years of my life because those are the years that I got to be Mia's dad. And, um, but I want you to know that no matter what happens, I'm going to follow you. I gave you my life and I'm yours. Whatever you want to do. The next morning, um, Mia was noticeably better. She was able to take a few steps and even though she hadn't really eaten anything in a day and a half, she said that she wanted to eat something and I said, Mama, whatever you want, I'll get it for you. And she said, you know what I'd really like is, is a vanilla milkshake. And so I go downstairs because at Joe DiMaggio, um, you go down to the lobby and they have a McDonald's in the lobby. Now, why anyone would put a McDonald's inside of a hospital we need to start asking questions about that. But uh, my, only, my only thing is they're trying to create repeat customers at the hospital by giving them McDonald's. But anyway, um, so I bought her the milkshake. I bought her the milkshake. And uh, I've never been so happy to get my kids McDonald's in my life than I was that day. And, uh, and I, gave her, I gave her the milkshake. And um, in 24 hours, they sent us home. And it took about a month but, um, for her to get back to normal. But um, Mia is 100% healed and whole. And she's in the children's ministry teaching your kids this morning. And, um, that was the hardest night of my life. Bar none, the hardest night of my life. And people ask me, whenever they hear the story, they'll ask me, what was God doing in you when all that happened? And I'll tell them God was parenting me and he was teaching me to build my house on a rock because building it on anything else will not stand when the day of trouble comes. And that, listen, and this is the goal. If we will build our house on a rock, whatever life throws at us, we will not be shaken. And that's God's heart for you, that you would have a faith that would not be shaken, that you would have a faith that cannot be moved when the day of trouble comes. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you that you don't just leave us to figure it out, but you're with us. You want to walk with us. You want to carry us, hold on to us in the difficult seasons. And so God, help us. Help us to build our house on something stable, on your love for us, not on what we think you owe us because we know that house is not going to stand when the day of trouble comes. Help us in that, Lord. Help us to walk with you. Help us to walk in a way that everyone else in this world sees a difference when they experience and interact with us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. 
It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.